Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman. In this episode of the Onkazine Brief, I talk with Peggy Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Rakuten Medical is developing a technology platform called Illuminox, which is based on a cancer therapy called Near Infrared Photoimmunotherapy. This technology was originally developed by Dr. Hisataka Kobayashi and his team at the National Cancer Institute in the United States. Rakuten Medical's first investigational drug, based on its Illuminox platform technology, is called ASP-1929. ASP-1929 is an antibody dye conjugate which includes the antibody cetuximab and a photosensitizer or light-activatable dye called IR-700. The antibody dye conjugate specifically targets the epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR, which is broadly expressed in tumors such as head and neck cancer, gastric cancer, prostate cancer, lung and pancreatic cancers, as well as glioblastoma. The antibody dye conjugate has a unique mechanism of action. After ASP-1929 is administered and binds to EGFR on tumor cells, the drug is locally activated with non-thermal red light using a device laser system. Preclinical data shows that following activation, ASP-1929 induces rapid cell membrane disruption of the targeted cancer cells, leading to cell necrosis and immunogenic cell death. Preclinical data also shows that ASP-1929 induces innate and adaptive anti-cancer immune responses. Regular Medical is currently conducting a global phase 3 multicenter clinical trial with ASP-1929 to evaluate the efficacy and safety in patients with recurrent head and neck cancer. In this program, we talk about platform technology and the regulatory aspects of developing this novel approach. We also talk about clinical trials, trial recruitment, and real-world data. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. The Oncosine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncosine at oncosine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support the program, visit our website at oncosine.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, that is C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Now let's listen to an interview with Peggy Berry. On the phone with me is uh, Peggy Berry. She is Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at a company called Ruggerton Medical. Peggy, welcome to the Oncosin Brief. Thank you. So in your function, you're responsible for regulatory affairs, global regulatory affairs. But before we're going to talk about uh, your job and about the company, tell me a little bit more about yourself. First and foremost, um, how uh, did you get here and what are you doing? Well, I have over 30 years of experience in regulatory affairs. 
I started out my career at the FDA, and then I spent a lot of my career in pharmaceutical companies of all different sizes, biotech companies, drug development, uh, biologics, devices, and combination products. And that is what brought me to Rakuten Medical is because we are developing a combination product for cancer patients. So the product that you uh, are developing is relatively unique. What also is unique is about the name of the company. I guess the majority of people, if you would ask them about Rakuten, um, they would recognize that name, thanks to also to a large TV and radio commercial presentations over the last uh, couple of uh, years. But... Recognizing medical may not necessarily ring a bell. Tell me a little bit about uh, the companies, how they're different, how they're linked, who and what is Rakuten? Sure. The Rakuten Medical does share the same CEO of the Rakuten Inc. company, which you would be familiar with. Rakuten Medical is a separate company, and Rakuten Inc., besides having the same CEO, does have certain shares within Rakuten Medical, so they're just as a normal shareholder would be. Other than that, we have no direct interaction or affiliation uh, with Rakuten Inc., but we do share some personnel in that regard. So it is a, a distant relationship linked, but not really uh, linked in, in all aspects of the business. Exactly, that's correct. So Rakuten Medical then was formed as a biotech company to develop uh, products specifically for oncology patients. And that was sort of the concept behind putting together Rakuten Medical. Yeah, to tell me a little bit about that history, about, about the development uh, of, of how this company came to be. The company came to be basically uh, through our CEO, Mickey Mikitani, who if you go onto the Rakuten Medical website, you'll be able to see his story firsthand. But he has personal personal knowledge about patients suffering from cancer, specifically his father, and that motivated him to want to give back to other patients, and although it's too late for his father, to hopefully be able to contribute to the health and well-being, quality of life of other patients and families suffering with cancer, being impacted within their family. And so he became interested in this technology that we are building within Rakuten Medical, which we call the Illuminox platform. The Illuminox platform is a photoimmunotherapy platform where we will create and deliver targeted therapies. So essentially, we have a molecule that targets certain receptors on tumor cells, and we infuse that together with a dye to patients so that it will target and accumulate around the tumor that we are going to treat. And then we use the photoimmunotherapy to expose the dye on that targeting molecule. And the, the light will, will activate the dye in a sense. It will excite the dye, so to say. And that will cause reaction within the tumor that will essentially cause the tumor to dissolve or to, to go into necrosis, which means that it will sort of begin to dissolve those tumor cells. So if you, um, in, in, in short, it is almost, I mean, it is like an antibody drug conjugate, right? So there is the antibody that is linked to uh, a, a particular payload. In your case, it is not a cytotoxic payload or an, an, an killing uh, payload, a medicine that, or a drug that kills. 
but it is an, an inert or an inactive payload, what you refer to as the dye, which then is then activated using light. That is correct, yes. Now, tell, tell me a little bit about the benefits of, of such an approach. Well, we are still in development, but our theoretical benefits would be that we will be able to target a tumor with this treatment because of the receptors that that tumor has, and therefore then the treatment will be able to get rid of the tumor or decrease the size of the tumor so that the patient will have a better quality of life, potentially not have to have surgery, uh, and then for any additional cells that might remain, they may have to go on the standard of care treatment, which could be another immunotherapy, a pill or an injection or whatever is available in the standard of care where they're being treated. But that's the, the kind of hypothesis behind the development of the product. Now, if you, if you look at, uh, at the drug, right, because it is a dye and it is not uh, an, an, an active cytotoxic or an active drug in the sense of, of what you would receive with another antibody drug conjugate, for example. It doesn't kill the cancer. It basically kind of goes to the, the cancer. If you look at, at the, uh, the potential for side effects and the potential for people feeling uh, not well after they've been tra treated because of this, the, 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 the adverse events that may occur, how does that uh, relate to this particular approach? Um, what are people or what can patients expect uh, for, uh, as, as an adverse event or uh, some of the, the unwanted uh, results in treatment? Well, as it's still in development, it's not clear exactly what adverse events we might have. It would differ from a chemotherapy or other type of systemic therapy where you would just be infused or you would take a specific product by mouth or something like that in that with a targeted therapy, it is less likely to have systemic side effects, like possibly nausea and vomiting or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. The side effects that may be expected with our products would be more targeted toward the tumor site, such as when the tumor does start to what I'll just call dissolve, there could be bleeding inside where the tumor is located simply because it is dissolving. So that that could be considered a result of the treatment, but it is also potentially an indication that the treatment is working. And this just might be one of the, the types of things that could be expected. But with our development program, that is certainly what we are studying is what do our adverse events look like compared to what could be expected from other types of treatments. And we'll have to characterize that profile, certainly for commercializing the product. So if you, if, if you look overall, I mean, the expectation uh, that people may have, for example, with chemotherapy or potentially with an antibody drug conjugate uh, where um, the, the payload uh, is an active cytotoxic, those expectations are different and they may be relatively mild in comparison. Is that a fair thing to say? They may or may not be mild in comparison, but they are likely going to be different for sure. Ours would be more locally associated to the tumor site itself. And many of those other treatments, because of the way that they are delivered, they will affect more the whole body and potentially have adverse events across the whole body and all of the body systems where ours would be localized more to the tumor site itself. 
Let's take a break, and then we're back with Peggy Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hofflin. If you're just joining us, this week I'm talking with Peggy Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Now, during the American Association for Clinical Research, uh, was, uh, the virtual meeting uh, was held earlier this year, you had some interesting presentation about uh, your photoimmunotherapy platform. Tell me a little bit about some of the outcomes or presentations that you had. Well, I was not part of delivering those presentations, and I can't say that I am an expert in all of that data. So really, that's probably a better question put to our medical and research groups. But we are definitely trying to do a lot of really good research to bring the therapies to the cancer patients as quickly as we can and to learn as much about our products along the way as we can. And these research papers that you would have heard about in the research we've been doing are our first steps in that direction and gaining more information toward the science behind our platform and how we can best use it to support patients down the road. Now, talking about the science in case of, of uh, what you're doing with the photoimmunotherapy, if you look at the science in, 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 in this particular immune, photoimmunotherapy, it's, again, it's different. It's a novel approach. It's a target approach like an, an antibody drug conjugate, but it's again different. Tell me a little bit about the complexity of the science behind the development of, of this approach. What I can tell you is that our mechanism is definitely different than the antibody mechanism of action if you were to use just an antibody conjugate. In that regard, it is the antibody itself that is delivering the treatment. In our case, the antibody is used simply to target the tumor. The dye then is adhered to it, as you mentioned, it's conjugated together so that the light will activate the dye. The mechanism of action then, I don't know exactly, but it is not about the activity of the antibody anymore. It's about what the light does to the dye to excite it and to cause the dissolving of the tumor, the necrosis of the tumor. So it, it activates the dye to essentially kill the tumor cells. And that's the mechanism of this product, which does make it different than the other products that are out there and, and different in some regards to other photoimmunotherapy. 
Yeah, talk, talk about different forms of photoimmunotherapy. There are different approaches to this phenomenon or this kind of uh, strategy. Is the fact that your approach is very targeted, and that your approach is, is really using the antibody to target and find the, the cancer cell after um, you expo- and then after your exposure to light, it kills the cancer. Is that one of the key differentiators between the different approaches? Yes, that is a key differentiator. And why I mentioned the mechanism of action for ours would be different than what it could be in some other approaches. And then we specifically target the areas where that dye would arise with the antibody as its conjugate so that we're not doing photoimmunotherapy in great big regions we specifically target to the tumor. And I think the, 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 the antibody is, is really the, the key in, in getting it to the particular tumor and to the particular cancer site. Is that correct? That is correct. Talking about, about how your approach is, is unique um, and how patients can benefit uh, from this. In June, you, and you announced a strategic alliance um, with MD Anderson Cancer Center. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me how important this is and how do patients benefit from from such a strategic alliance? With the strategic alliance, we are trying to develop certain alliances with premier cancer centers, with premier physicians in the head and neck cancer space in particular, because that is our first focus for the tumors. They will provide us with advice and information about the, the ongoing treatment for this patient, these patients and how we may best tailor our own development program to suit unmet needs for these patients. They will also participate in conduct of some of our clinical research and enroll patients at their center so that we can be informed on the efficacy that they're seeing, the safety that they're seeing in the patients, and it will allow us to bring this information to patients when we're able to make the drug available commercially. So that's the importance of the alliance is to develop a partnership with them for information to go in both directions and for them to become very familiar with our product, perhaps at some point in time help help to instruct other physicians, other surgeons, et cetera, on the use of the product and how it can fit into their clinical practice when it's available more widely. And, and of course, this MD Anderson is in the United States, but you have similar arrangements with the National Cancer Center in Japan, right? That is correct. Yes, we do. And we may at some point seek out additional arrangements for having these same kind of alliances because we do want to be able to reach as many patients as possible. So we would want to have alliances and great knowledge base with as many of the the premier cancer institutes as we can. Now, the unique thing of the National Cancer Center in, in Japan is that that is also the country where your drug, I think it was originally called ASP 1929, received conditional early approval and for the treatment of patients with recurrent head and neck cancer. Tell me a little bit more about, about this particular concept, uh, the uh, conditional early approval. Um, first of all, why is this important for you? But also... What is is the difference between a conditional early approval versus a standard uh, approval process? I'll start by telling you first, the first designation we got and announced some time ago was a Sakigaki designation. 
The sakigaki designation in Japan is relevant because it allows for companies to submit to have reviewed for marketing applications that have a large part of their initial research conducted in Japan and for which Japan will be the first country in the world to provide an approval. So they allowed us this designation, meaning that we could apply for getting reviewed to become a commercial product. And then more recently, they approved us to be reviewed under the conditional early approval system. The conditional early approval system means that the review time of our data will be faster, six months compared to 12 months for a typical conditional approval, as well as a a regular approval. And then with it being a conditional early approval, that the conditional portion of that means that we will continue to follow in a post-marketing setting, safety and efficacy, and we may have to develop additional research um, that will look at safety and efficacy for patients in the longer term. Those things uh, remain to be discovered from the PMDA, who is the organization who reviews the product data in Japan, and then comes out again from the MHLW, which is their uh, health health and welfare uh, organization. So we don't know what our conditions will be yet, but it will be something like that in a post-marketing setting, where we are continuing to collect the data actively on patients who are being treated with the product commercially, and that will further inform our commercialization in Japan as well as wherever else in the world we are developing the product. When you look at, for example, the difference between Japan and and the regulatory environment in the United States or the regulatory environment in in Europe, this is a first step in Japan. How does that fast-track or or not the regulatory approval or the approval process with the FDA here in the United States and with the EMA in, in, in Europe, for example, I mean, is there a benefit? Um, do those organizations look at one another in terms of, well, you've approved this, here are your conditions. Okay, well, we understand and, and we're going to develop our own set of rules. How does that benefit Rakuten? There's not really a direct impact on the Japan approval or commercialization to our development in the rest of the world, except for the continuing data that we are developing related to that. Each of the regulatory agencies do have their own sets of standards and their own precedent for similar products or for products that have been approved in the same indication, the head and neck cancer. So we will still have to follow along with those requirements and standards, as well as any other advice we get to be approved by the other regulatory agencies. And they also have their own set of early approval mechanisms that we can pursue. So we certainly will pursue any of the early approval mechanisms that we can in these other regions, like in the U.S., the accelerated approval program, which is very similar to the conditional approval program in Japan. We would pursue that if we get the appropriate data to present to the FDA for um for getting the kind of the, that kind of approval, which is also on an early endpoint and it comes with a requirement to continue to do what I'll call an outcome study, so for a final endpoint. So we will pursue those mechanisms and we will continue to develop the product for global approvals following the, the rules and requirements within each of the regions where we're seeking approval. 
If you uh, compare that fact that you are now in Japan or in, in, in the, it's the early approval phase in Japan, it's, it's almost like a, a, a building with different uh, little blocks and building blocks to actually get to the next phase of the regulatory approval in different territories. Is that a fair analogy? Yes, that is a very fair analogy. It's all done with building blocks, with baby steps, and we continue to add more knowledge as we go along and as we are um, at the stage for each of the additional regions that we're going to go into and the requirements that they have. So that's a perfect analogy. Let's take a break, and then we're back with our interview with Peggy Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. If you're just joining us, this week I'm talking with Peggy Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Now, if you if you um, look at uh, some of the other developments uh, that uh, we've noted with um, Rakuten and, and how you develop uh, your, your product and You've also signed a, a, a contract or a deal with Merck, uh, that's the German Merck, the Merck and KGAA KG, in Darmstadt, Germany. This is a, a, a production agreement. How important is such an agreement for, for your company? It is a commercial supply agreement, and it is for cetuximab, which is the antibody that we use to target the tumor cells and conjugate together with our dye. The reason why this is important is because with that contract, we are securing a certain amount in supply to be delivered to us from Merck KGAA uh, by contract. So we won't have to seek out other supply. We won't have to do anything like that. We've got the confirmed supply of cetuximab in order to be able to conjugate it to our dye and use it for patients as we go into commercialization. So it's an assurance to patients as well as to Rakuten Medical, that we will have that supply being reviewed. The data and the preparation of that molecule is being reviewed as part of our submission package, as part of our conjugate, so that we won't need to make any changes in the, the short term about how we're doing things. So it's a, it's a confidence, it's an assurance that when we are able to go commercialized in Japan, that we will have the necessary supply to fulfill the needs of the market. So it's actually a key contract and key agreement for you. That is correct, yes. Now, you mentioned one thing, it's like that the, the, the agreement is for the, the for cetuximab. Well, cetuximab is an approved drug um, in as the, as the monoclonal antibody as a therapy, is an approved drug. Now, from a regular point of view, you are conjugating um, something or attaching something to this monoclonal antibody. How different or how complex is, is that adjustment for regulatory bodies to, to, to look at? Because obviously you take a biologic and you add something to it, but it's not necessarily the same thing. Make, does that make the uh, application easier because there is an approved drug or does not make it a little bit more difficult? The application is a little bit easier because of that, because the safety of cetuximab will have already been demonstrated 
by itself. So we don't have to really study the safety of cetuximab alone, but we can focus on studying the safety and the efficacy of our conjugate used together with the photoimmunotherapy system that we have. So that it makes it easier that we don't have to demonstrate the safety of it separately. And since our mechanism of action is different, the efficacy portion of what has already been demonstrated for cetuximab does not really apply to us. But then our focus can just be on the safety and then efficacy of our conjugate with the photoimmunotherapy system. Now, theoretically, and, and I know that, that you're not a scientist in, 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 or not an investigator or a researcher in that respect. You are using cetuximab as a, a carrier, um, as, as the, the antibody that seeks out the, the, the cancer or the, the receptors on the cancer cells. In, in theory, would it be an option to consider different monoclonal antibodies, antibodies to try and reach different forms of cancer? Yes, absolutely. That is uh, the theory. And it is our belief that that is something that can be done with our Illuminox platform. So we would attempt to do, and we are currently looking at in early research, other antibodies to target other receptors for various other tumor types. So we're looking at what receptors different tumor types have and what antibodies can target them and whether or not then they would be a candidate to have further research done on them in terms of the, going into the clinic and testing uh, this kind of targeting for the other tumor cells with that diet then applying our photoimmunotherapy if it will work on those uh, other tumor types. So yes, that is absolutely correct as a theory that we're pursuing in early research and would hope to bring into clinical testing as soon as we get enough information to do that. So that's basically a little bit about your pipeline, growing your pipeline by, by making sure that you can reach different forms of cancer. What other things are you developing in terms of, of or helping the development of, of your anti-cancer uh, approach? At the moment, we're focused on head and neck cancer in our clinical development program and doing this early research for other molecules that could be used with the Illuminox platform. Beyond that, as a relatively small company, we can't really focus on a lot of other things yet. But as the company begins to progress these programs, you know, we may take a look into other activities, other things that we want to get involved in for the anti-cancer overall profile and aspiration of the organization. But to date, we don't have any thoughts about what that will be or any commitment toward a particular type of area or program that we would pursue. But certainly that will be something that comes after we've worked on these focused areas of unmet medical need and we can take a closer look at, at larger strategic areas that we might go into to continue to help cancer patients and deliver our aspiration of, of conquering cancer. Right. There's definitely something interesting to follow in the, in the years to come, I would say. Now, we are in the middle of this uh, pandemic, this global pandemic with uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, and, and how people refer to it. And how does that um, impact your drug development? Because obviously, Part of direct development is, is clinical trials. If you turn to the, the mainstream media and, and, and you listen to the authorities, then there is nothing in this world other than COVID that is really uh, the key or is important right now. Obviously, uh, that's not the case. People have cancer. 
people need treatment, uh, drug development needs to go on, regulatory approaches need to go on. How is this this whole pandemic uh, impacting Rakuten um, and, and the clinical research that you do in Japan, maybe other parts of the world, um, how is this impacting you? The main way that it really impacts us is that although cancer does go on, it does not wait for COVID or for anything else. And certainly the patients are out there who could be enrolled in our study. Part of the issue is that many of our treatments need to be delivered in institutions that then become filled up with COVID patients. And so they don't have a space really to dedicate to doing the research that needs to be done. So that's just a long way of saying our enrollment certainly has been slowed down because of COVID-19. Patients who are already enrolled in our studies are certainly continuing treatments and follow-up under the study protocol. But new patient enrollment, while it's still ongoing, has been delayed some depending on the institution and the, the capacity that they have to accept patients who are not COVID patients, and then patients for this type of research versus other types of surgeries that may need to happen or treatments that may be uh, needing to be delivered for other medical conditions. So there is an impact. They are still ongoing, just at a little bit of a slower rate. Does that um, potentially slow down also the, the regulatory applications uh, since, of course, it may, may be more difficult or it may take longer to get the data that you need? It could possibly slow it down, but certainly we are looking at mitigating these types of things, perhaps by adding more sites, maybe reducing the number of patients we would have to study until we get to the place where we're submitting a marketing application. So we're definitely trying to balance our timelines and not having a lot of delays because of the slowdown in enrollment. Also putting uh, together some potential plans that we may use to get the enrollment to speed up as soon as it's possible to do that when COVID is hopefully not such a big factor anymore. So I, I wouldn't say at this moment that it will slow us down because we are looking at possible ways to mitigate that, that risk to overall delay our introduction of the product into the regulatory review system for approval and ultimately to the market. But, you know, there is a possibility if we do not mitigate it, that that could occur. But as we are actively mitigating it, I'm hopeful that if our timelines are delayed, it will not be significantly. So as, as we discussed, I mean, I mean, the product is, is under conditional uh, approval, uh, early approval in Japan, not in the United States and not in Europe yet. What are your expectations uh, for um, the, 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 those phases, those early approval phases or the approval phases in, in the United States and Europe? I mean, your timeline, what do you expect? We are currently still working on that strategy and consulting with health authorities in the U.S. and in the EU so that we can ensure that we have a good understanding of what their requirements are going to be in order to get early approval and then for any commitments that we would have to make after that. So I don't have a solid timeline on that right now, but we are in the stages of refining the plans toward that confirming them with the regulatory agency, and then making sure that we have all of the work ongoing that's going to be necessary to fulfill their requirements. So we are um, working toward it as quickly as we, we can based on the timelines that are available to us in those other countries. And we'll have those, those more confirmed plans and, and pieces of advice 
in the relatively short term, certainly in this year, so that we can have more concrete ideas about the timelines for our marketing application. Let's take a break, and then we're back with our interview with Taki Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Rakuten Medical is developing an antibody dye conjugate called ASP1929 that specifically targets the epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR, which is broadly expressed in tumors such as head and neck cancer, gastric cancers, prostate cancer, lung and pancreatic cancers, as well as glioblastoma. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncocene Brief. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is encouraging cancer patients and survivors to be extra cautious during the COVID-19 pandemic. Cancer treatment, especially chemotherapy, weakens the immune system, making you at higher risk of severe illness. Dr. Lisa Richardson is director of the CDC's Division of Cancer Prevention and Control. Take these steps to stay healthy. Wash your hands often with soap and water. Clean and disinfect frequently touch surfaces daily. Stay home. If you must leave, keep at least six feet between you and others. Avoid touching your face, eyes, nose, and mouth with unwashed hands. If your temperature is 100.4 or higher, call your doctor. Use CDC's coronavirus self-checker to help you make decisions about seeking medical care. Make sure your caregivers and household members are aware of your higher risk and take precautions. Visit cdc.gov backslash coronavirus and preventcancerinfections.org for more health tips. This is the Oncozine Brief with Peter Hofflin. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. Now, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. And you mentioned that you have a long history um, in terms of regulatory affairs um, with the FDA, but also different biotech companies. From, from where you are, you've probably seen a lot of changes in expectations in, 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 from regulatory bodies. One of those changes seems to be an emphasis on what uh, started a few years ago when it talks about real-world data. How does that differ from uh, the earlier approaches to clinical trial data? And how does that, for example, impact what you do at Rakuten? Well, so real-world data means when the product becomes commercialized and widely available, how is it then used by the physician and the patient? Um, The difference between that and how we do development is when we do development, we create what's called a clinical protocol, and it has very specific ways to use the product. Certain patients who are entered into the study For example, perhaps they cannot have treatments with other types of therapies at the time when they're in the study, just as an example of what it could be, where in the real world, they may have these other background treatments that they're receiving. So in development, we do that because the the best way to look at the data is to make sure that you have a more homogeneous population and that they all use the product uh, a pretty consistent way so that any of the results that you that you get out of that study and that you can interpret, you can associate with the treatment that's being given rather than with other information about treatments that a patient's being given or other conditions that they may have, comorbid conditions in addition to their 
the tumor that we're trying to treat. So the reason why it's emphasized to get real-world data is to look back at the development data and see how consistent the patients respond to the product in the real world with all of the other uh, heterogeneous things that could be going on in the real world. So the data that we achieve in Japan, once we receive approval, will be that kind of data in the real-world setting that we will collect for safety and efficacy to further inform that program. And we will do similar things in the U.S. and the EU in surveillance after we've marketed. But our clinical studies will still be designed in a way that they will be best interpreted, which is a little bit more homogeneous and with a tighter group of patients. So, for example, not everyone with head and neck cancer would qualify for the study, there are certain other conditions that would need to be met to become part of the actual clinical trial. But in the real world, it's possible that a physician would still think that they would be a candidate for treatment with the product. How is that change from clinical trials to the treatment by a physician after a drug is approved? How is that going to change um, how a, a drug is being perceived? Or is it going to change, for example, uh, the safety or the efficacy? Because obviously you, you, you have a more homogeneous kind of population in the clinical trial. When you're going to change that into, quote unquote, the real world, are you going to be aware of, of the, the, the potential side effects, the potential benefits, and all the other things that may come, come to the fore? We will know the benefits and the side effects that come out of our clinical studies, and those will be the things that are described in the labeling and the the use information about our drug and our device. And then the reason why the agencies are now looking for more real-world information is to make sure that what we are getting in the clinic is being translated into the real world and that there are not additional events that we have not seen in the clinical studies that are happening in the real world. So that's our commitment to continue the surveillance of what's going on with patients who are using the product in a commercial setting and weighing that back to the risk-benefit profile that we saw in a clinical study so that we can take any experiences that we become aware of and inform other users of the product in the commercial setting as well as any other investigators who are working on the the clinical studies. So yeah, we'll use that information, we will become aware of it, and we'll integrate it into the mix when we're looking at the benefit versus the risk and making patients aware of that before they enroll in a clinical study or before they work with their physician to gain access to the treatment commercially. That's definitely good news, of, of course. Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we, we, you men, we mentioned COVID, right? Is COVID as a potential where people may not necessarily uh, be treated in a certain area because of or participate in clinical trials? Participation in clinical trials is notoriously difficult. Um, I think on, on, on an average between 4 and 6% of the adult population in the United States is participating in clinical trials. I mean, I think 6% is then a very high number, I believe. What are you doing to, to recruit patients um, in, in clinical trials in the United States or Europe, uh, but also in Japan, where things may even be more difficult in, in clinical trial recruitment? We do as many things as we can to get recruitment in the clinical trials, of course. The, the other thing with clinical trials is that there have to be certain agreements in place with particular institutions and physicians. So there are a limited number of 
sites that participate in clinical trials as opposed to when it becomes commercial and it's available to anyone who wants to use it or believes that their patient could use the product to treat their condition. With clinical trials, we're limited only to those clinical study sites who agree to participate Mm -hmm. in the investigational research. So those are the only ones who have availability. And then to, to get the patients, we access the patients who come to that center for treatment of their head and neck cancer. The sites are familiar with the requirements of the protocol, and if they believe that the patient is appropriate to be studied in the protocol, they make it available at the option of the patient to potentially participate in the study. And so it's really the patient's choice whether or not they would participate in the clinical study. There is also, within the U.S. and also within uh, Europe and some other countries, websites from sponsored by the government generally who have listings of the clinical studies that are going on in particular disease areas where patients could search. In the U.S., it's clinicaltrials.gov where patients can go on, search out the the disease that they have and find listings of clinical studies that might be available, they can speak to their physician about it and potentially get enrolled at one of the sites who are participating in the study so that they could become part of that clinical study. And that's also why, for example, my understanding that the relationships, the alliances that you're building with uh, institutions like MD Anderson Cancer Centers, uh, but also with the National Cancer Center of Japan and others, are key to your development program in that respect. Is that, is that correct to assume? Yeah, that's correct. That's one of the reasons why they're very important. They're not going to be the only places where we conduct our clinical studies, but having the alliance with them gives us a broader access to patients, a building of expertise in administering the treatment and so forth. So it's definitely important to us getting the research completed with uh, good advisors and that clinical study sites where there will be access to a lot of patients. Something to, to look forward in the, in, the, in, the, in the coming years, I think, is, is to uh, a new, very targeted approach uh, in head and neck cancer, potentially also in different cancers. And so if people want to know a little bit more about Rakuten, about uh, ASP 1929, about your clinical trials, about partnership with uh, your organization, where do they get that information? The information on partnerships and collaborating with Rakuten Medical, inquiries about that can be sent to partnerships at rakuten-med.com, and our business development people are able to respond. If there are questions on the clinical trials that uh, need to be responded to after looking them up, perhaps on clinicaltrials.gov for participating locations, you can uh, also send the email to that address, and we will make sure that it gets to the appropriate person or department to make a response and to reach out for uh, providing more information. Thank you very much, uh, Peggy Berry, for for your time this morning and and your uh, explanations of what uh, you and your teams uh, at Records and Medical are doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. In today's edition of the Oncogene Brief, I spoke with Peggy Berry, Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at Rakuten Medical. Rakuten Medical is developing an antibody dye conjugate called ASP1929 that specifically targets the epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR, which is broadly expressed in tumors such as head and neck cancer and gastric cancers, prostate cancers, and lung and pancreatic cancers, as well as glioblastoma. 
For more information about Rakuten Medical, visit the company's website at rakuten-med.com. For us here at the Onkers in Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX Public Radio Exchange and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes and Spotify. For more information about supporting the Oncogene Brief, go to Oncogene at Oncogene.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. 